Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need to know you in the core of our beings. Help us to grasp just a little bit firmer a concept of who you are. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I asked you to answer that question. What percentage of ourselves do we usually reveal to other people? Whatever number you came up with, it's very small, isn't it? And thank you. Please don't reveal more than we're comfortable with about who you really are, okay? Just keep it nice and hidden uh, until it's appropriate. Now you notice as you get closer and closer to people, you reveal a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more of who you really are. I want to suggest that every now and then you do this practice. And it's a hard one, but it's an important one. And that is you go to a place of solitude, somewhere where you're all alone. And project into your mind or conjure up in your mind a picture of who you really are right now. You find that it's, well, I'm just confessing about me. Sometimes it's really hard to have that clear picture and to be honest about that picture. Okay, But then go back five years and conjure up a picture of who you were five years ago. And then compare the two. And ask yourself the question, how have I improved over the last five years? One more question. How over the last five years have I become more like Jesus Christ? And the reason why we should be doing that is because we've learned that God the Spirit is constantly at work within us. And his work is to produce in us the character of Jesus Christ to change us increasingly into people who are more and more like Jesus. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's a statement of fact. And the statement of fact is that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God is at work inside of you to transform you, to grow you, to change you into someone who is just like Jesus. How do we do that? How do we participate in it? Read very carefully. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed. Notice that we have a role in this process. And that is to contemplate the Lord's glory. To contemplate means to think, to look, to turn your mind on, and to process everything that you can about him. And it's specifically about his glory. And don't miss this fact, that God is changing us from glory to glory to glory. He's at work within us, building into us the glorious character of Jesus Christ, something that is supernatural beyond our capacities. And he is at work doing that to the degree that we participate and to the degree that we contemplate the Lord's glory. We turn on our brains and we examine Jesus Christ as much as possible. Well, how do we do that? Well, John tells us the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, we don't have the benefit that John had. He walked with Jesus, and for three years at least, he was around Jesus, and he saw the glory of God in Jesus, 
And he describes it as full of grace and truth. But the point is, he was around Jesus for all those years. But what about us? We can't walk with Jesus and do that. Yes, we can. In his first letter, John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. It's interesting. He doesn't say he who. And that has always bothered me. It's like, why didn't you say he who was from the beginning, who we have heard, and so on. But what John is describing here is more than Jesus. He's, he's, he's describing for us the experience of living with Jesus. They saw him. They touched him. They walked with him. And imprinted upon them was who he was. And he says, in this we proclaim the word of life. Why? The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's saying we had this incredible experience of seeing Jesus. And you're going, oh, I'm so glad for you, John. What about us? <laughs> we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He says, we've proclaimed this. And he didn't realize that maybe at this point in time, he was writing it as he wrote the Gospel of John, as he wrote his letters, as other Gospel writers wrote the Gospels, and as the others wrote the letters of the New Testament. They were revealing Jesus Christ to us so that we can contemplate the glory of Jesus Christ. Are you tracking with me or have you fallen asleep already? Okay. How do we become more and more like Jesus Christ? The way we do it is that we turn our brains on. We go to the scriptures and we examine the scriptures as carefully as possible so that we develop inside of us a picture of what Jesus is like. I've got a picture of who I am now, a picture of who I was five years ago. How do I become who God wants me to become? By focusing on who Jesus is, what he's like. And in that process, beginning to grow and to change into his image. So the whole idea is that we need to imprint in our own minds the real Jesus. And I say the real Jesus because all of us have a fake Jesus in our minds. Okay, Understand this. You've got a fake Jesus. And you know what your fake Jesus is like? He's just a little bit better than you. <laughs> they've, done, they've done research on that. And they had people describe themselves and then sometime later have them describe Jesus. And then they showed them. Do you realize that your Jesus is you, but just a little bit better than you are? That's not good enough. We have to see the real Jesus. And we're told again, John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And this is the one I want to focus on today. Full of grace and truth. Now, it's very important that we grasp that he is always, at all times, full of grace and truth. So we'll let this jar represent truth, and this jar represent grace. You will find that among human beings, we cannot do both at the same time, and we can't do both perfectly. When it comes to truth, we have a problem that we can, we can grasp hold of truth and hold on to truth but we're not very gracious once we found the truth. I know the truth. And I've got a corner on the truth. When it comes to grace, we go, oh yeah, I can understand mercy, forgiveness, by the way. Mercy, God's forgiveness, God's, God's favor toward us. We can grasp all of that. We can grasp truth and grace. But the two of them together takes a miracle. 
Let me explain it to you this way. Many churches and many leaders, many people, grasp hold of Jesus, his grace. And that's good. We need to understand his mercy, his love. The fact that we come to him and he accepts us just as we are. The unmerited favor of Jesus Christ. But the danger is that we go too far. And we turn him, him into this father in heaven who just overlooks our sin. He knows that we're, we're sinful and so he doesn't hold it against us. We, 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 we get to this place where we hmm, emasculate Jesus. Hmm. Where we take away truth. And all we want is this domesticated Jesus. You know what happens with domesticated animals, right? You take away their power. You take away the, their claws. You take away their teeth. You take away anything that might hurt you. And many of us carry in our minds a domesticated Jesus. He's sweet. He is. He's loving. He is. But he doesn't have any claws. He doesn't have any teeth. But then there's the other end. Some people love the fact of truth. And so what they do is they co-opt Jesus to whatever their particular Agenda is at that moment. What's that word? Hang on. I've got to look it up because it was a very good word. And it took Google forever to help me find it. Conscript. All right. You know what a conscript is? A conscript was when you go and you grab somebody off the streets and you conscript him into the army. And he doesn't want to be in the army. He doesn't want to be on your side. But you conscript him and you make him go there. Many of us go to Jesus and we conscript him. And so we say, Jesus is a socialist. And if you're not a socialist, you're against Jesus. Some of us say, no, no, no. He's a capitalist. And if you're a socialist, you're against Jesus. Jesus is a capitalist, just like me. You with me there? You guys are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Think back to the Civil War. Whose side was Jesus on? The North? Or the South, they both conscripted him. The North said, he is for us, our fight is righteous. The South said, no, he's for us, states' rights is righteousness. We, he, Jesus is on our side. Abraham Lincoln was the only one who got it right. He said, he's on nobody's side. This is a mess. All right, so here's the thing. When we hear that Jesus is full of grace and truth, it's not that he has grace and truth in balance. It's that when you come to Jesus... You're coming to somebody who is always grace and who is always truth. I love the way it turns purple, so that's at least close to what I wanted. Okay. When you come to Jesus, you're coming to somebody who is always grace and always truth. So he comes to Raymond and he confronts me about my sins. And it hurts. And he's honest. And he speaks to me as I really am. And it hurts But his grace is there. And so I'm not crushed. I'm not destroyed. Because when he confronts me, he leads me to confession, to repentance, to cleansing, and moves me on. But notice, the truth and the grace are both there at the same time. And there are times when I come to Jesus and I'm full of grace I'm very happy and I'm, oh, kind of, and then all of a sudden while I'm studying a passage of scripture or listening to something, all of a sudden, 
truth comes. From no, this doesn't happen to you? Come on. That all of a sudden, in the middle of your happy life, all of a sudden you face something about yourself or about the world that is unexpected, and it's like, oh, that's not comfortable. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. Some people get very uncomfortable with that truth. What? You want to tell me that, that so-and-so, this person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, is not going to heaven? That's truth. It's there, John three sixteen. But when you read it, it's capsulated in grace. And so when we come to Jesus, we come to somebody who's not grace and truth in balance. We come to someone who is grace and truth always, at all times. And that's such a vital thing for us to understand. Because you see what happens is that sometimes when we face truth, that truth can push us and what truth will do is reveal guilt to us, okay? But what happens with guilt goes wrong. Guilt says to me, you've done something wrong. What guilt does is it'll push me towards shame. And shame says there's something wrong with you. You're broken. Nothing can fix you. That's what shame says. And you see how guilt is important because it brings us to the grace of Jesus Christ. But if it is not brought to grace, it turns into shame and it can break us down. And so grasping hold of the fact that Jesus is at all times both grace and truth is vital. So how do we do that? How do we get a grasp of this? That's why the New Testament was written. And I always suggest start with the Gospels. And as you read the Gospels, read them with this in mind. Jesus, I want to know you as you really are. There was an occasion, when, and what you'll find in the, in the New Testament is Jesus self-reveals. He lets us know what he is like. By the way he speaks, by the way he acts, by the way he interacts with people. And there was an occasion when Jesus was up in the northern end of, of, of Israel. And see a map in your mind? Here's the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea down here and Mediterranean out here. So Jesus was up here in the Galilean area teaching. And at first the crowds came to him because he was doing miracles and feeding thousands. And they were, it was wonderful. And they were expecting him to become their king and overthrow the Romans and he wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it. And he wouldn't do it. And so the crowds got annoyed with him because he refused to do what they wanted him to do. But at the same time, the religious leaders were terrified of him. Because the crowds were coming toward Jesus and the sinners were coming toward Jesus. And the religious leaders were absolutely terrified because they were going to lose their power. And so they began to criticize him. And they did it this way. They said, you are a friend of sinners. Therefore, you are a sinner. You hang out with tax collectors. You hang out with people who are immoral. And people who are immoral and tax collectors who who are traitors are drawn to you. Therefore, there's something immoral about you. And so Jesus said to those religious leaders, he said, have you noticed something about yourselves? He said, John the Baptist came down here at the Dead Sea and he didn't come eating and drinking like you. He was very different, wasn't he? And you said he has a demon. And now I come and I hang out with you like ordinary people. I eat and I drink just like ordinary people. And what do you say about me? You tell me that I am morally corrupt. He said, do you realize that there's no way that anybody can please you people? And so he took his disciples and he left the region of Galilee. And as he left Galilee, he said, you know what? It's going to be harder for these cities in Israel on the day of judgment than it will be for cities that are outside of the kingdom of God right now. They're going to face 
tremendous punishment in the future. These people for rejecting me. And so as he left that area, the disciples were aware that he's angry. But they're also aware that he's grieving. So understand, there are times when emotions mix within us. And so he's angry at them for the rejection of him. But at the same time, he's grieving. But then as he walks on, they expect, and really, John and James and John were ready for this. Okay. Ha! Hit them. Fry them right now. Burn them up. Destroy them. And you see, if Jesus was only truth, yeah, they deserve it. They're going to go down. We were praying for a man who had abandoned his wife a few years ago. Abandoned his wife and kids and just walked off. And a group of us were praying for them. And one of the guys prayed about the husband and said, Lord, Lord God, if you want to break his legs, it's okay with us. <laughs> Do you see our problem? <laughs> we go here. And the disciples were ready for Jesus to go here. But he didn't. Instead... Instead of at this moment being hijacked by his anger and by his grief, Jesus shows that he sees the whole picture. And there were people up here who didn't reject him, who did follow after him. And he describes those people as the kind of people we need to be, and that he describes them as teachable people. Here's what it says. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, Because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. The word little children there is a fascinating word. It's it's a word that means before language. Before people speak. Think about a baby. You bring this little blob home from from the hospital, okay? This little thing here, and it, it can't speak, but it's got a brain that is firing its synapses all the time. And so you talk to that little baby and you coo over the baby and you just say sweet things about the baby and the baby's little brain begins to go, huh, these creatures make sounds. And these sounds are nice. I want to learn how to make these sounds too. And the most astounding thing is that this little baby begins to develop language. Did you know that that is the one thing that scientists cannot explain? Is where in the world did we cultivate that capacity for language? It's there. And it begins to grow. And the baby begins to learn how to speak back and to respond and to communicate. And Jesus says there's some people among us who are like little children. They're tuned into God. And when they tune into God, they begin to hear him speak and they begin to learn how to communicate and to speak with him. And he says, and those are the people to whom God reveals himself. But he keeps it hidden from those who are wise and learned. Now, you've got to understand what he's talking about in this context. He's not disparaging education. And he's not saying that educated people all go to hell. You with me there? Are you awake? So we we don't mistake that. The wise and learned people that he's talking about are those people who go, I know the truth. I got the corner on the market. You can't teach me anything. I know the truth. Listen, human beings barely understand. We've barely scratched the surface of truth. 
This morning, I made breakfast for myself, okay? I made eggs, and I made coffee. And you know what they've been telling us for years? They told us, don't eat eggs. Eggs are bad for you. And then they changed their mind, and they said, no, 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 eat eggs. Eggs are good for you. And for years, they said, don't drink coffee. Coffee's bad for you. And then they changed their mind. They said, no, coffee's good for you. And I had orange juice. That's really my breakfast this morning. And just recently, they were saying, don't drink orange juice. It's too loaded with sugar. Guess what they're saying now? Do drink orange juice because it helps to ward off Alzheimer's. Okay, if we can't figure out eggs and coffee and orange juice, how in the heck are we going to figure out the meaning of life? How are we going to figure out where this world came from? We cannot fully understand truth at all, but there are human beings who go, I got it. I've figured it out. You can't teach me anything. And Jesus says, okay, if you really want to know the truth, you really want to experience the real life as it really is, you've got to be teachable. You've got to be like little children who are willing to absorb and to learn what God is revealing about himself. And God is revealing a ton about himself. Hang on, I'm trying to make this thing obey me, and it won't. I've lost control. Tiffany, could you go on? Okay. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying to us, all right, if you open your brain and you let me inform you and teach you, you're going to learn who I am, what I'm like, but in the process, you're going to learn what God is like. And you will come to know that full experience of God. Ah, Next one, thanks. The writer to the Hebrews understood this. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Notice what he's telling us to do. He's telling us that we need to run. We need to to work hard at becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. But we do it by fixing eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on him. And as we see who he is and what he's like and we keep following after him, he can do the work of changing us and transforming us into people who are like God. If I fix my eyes on Jesus, how is he going to treat me? Okay. He's going to treat me with grace. Watch what he says. And this is a very familiar passage. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you relief. Most of us are used to that that word being, uh, I will bring you, come to me, all who are weary and labor labor and burdened, and I will give you rest. A better translation of that word is relief, okay? Because he doesn't turn us into people who go, oh, cool, I've got troubles. Okay, Jesus, you take them away. I'm going to rest. No, he says, I'll give you relief. How will he give you relief? He'll help you with the anxiety. He'll help you with the trouble. But he will then give you guidance. In other words, he's not going to, to, to turn you into a, a useless blob. He's going to make you strong in the process. Okay. Come to me, all who are weary. The word weary describes somebody who has been working all day and is now physically exhausted. Some of you have never experienced that. If you'd like to, we, we've got weeds here. You can come and just so that you understand what it's like to be weary. To be weary is to get to that place where you're absolutely, completely exhausted. So, just a little personal thing. Sunday morning after second service, Raymond is weary. Okay, I am wiped out. And I love it when somebody comes up and wants to argue theology with me. It's like, right now, I don't care. (laughs) Can't do it. So, I understand weary. 
And then burdened. The main burden people in those days were carrying was religion. The main burden they had was that on top of the law of God, their religious leaders had piled on laws after laws after laws. And unfortunately, many of us grew up in churches like that. Listen to this. Perhaps the prime group that Jesus had in mind when he said these words were the sincere Jewish people who were sincerely trying to find God, but who could not because their religious leaders burdened them with their excessive and elaborate religion. Their leaders had wrongly exposed that since, supposed that since God had given laws to govern their lives, that the way to be really religious was to invent more and more laws. <laughs> And so they were burdened by all of these laws. They couldn't find their way to God because it was totally miserable. Did you know that if you were a a true committed Jew in those days, you would figure out how many nails it took to hold a sandal together. And you would make your sandal with only that many nails. So that if you happen to put those shoes on, on the Sabbath, you wouldn't be breaking the law that says you're not to carry a burden on the Sabbath. Because you'd be carrying one nail too many. Therefore, you're carrying a burden. Can you imagine what miserable life was like? Laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. And he says, come to me who you are burdened with, with these laws. And I'll give you relief. I'll take it away. And I'll give you my grace. But we come burdened sometimes with sin and with shame. Remember what shame says? Shame says you're broken. Shame says there's something wrong with you. There's something that cannot be fixed. That is not true. Guilt says there's something you need to deal with and that takes you to grace. But shame will take you even further down into that. Also, life has got trouble all the time. Jesus was, was honest about that. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And we have guys on, 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 on the, the, the TV set who say, if you're a true Christian, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise. You're never going to have trouble at all. If you're a Christian like me, you too will have a jet. You too will have a big house with a swimming pool. You too will never be in trouble. It's like, oh, come on, please. When you watch TV and you see these guys, understand they're telling you a lie. God did not promise us that if we were spiritual Christians, we would not have difficulty. We would not have trouble. I think it's rather interesting that one of the guys who preaches this wears glasses. (laughs) Like, hello, come on. If God does everything for you, why do you have to wear glasses? Well, because I can't see without them. Well, yeah, but why didn't God heal your eyes? Sorry, don't preach, Raymond. Move on, okay? <laughs> okay I know I've lost my place at, on, on, in these things, so hang on, let me go there next. Okay, so Jesus says, come to me who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest you go I will give you relief and we think oh okay good and then I'll just float through the rest of my days happily ever after not quite he goes on and he says this and when you come to me I will give you relief but I want you then to submit to my leadership and I want you to follow after me take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. By the way, there's that same word. You will find relief for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke was a piece of wood that was designed to be put across two animals. That's the kind of yoke he's talking about here. 
And the reason for that is that when you put the yoke on one animal, that animal had to pull the entire weight. When you put it on two animals, you spread the weight out so that they were each pulling at least half of the weight. And therefore, it was easier to pull. And Jesus says to us, you've yoked yourself to guilt, to shame, to religion, to non-religion. You've, you've yoked yourself to all kinds of things. Take that yoke away and put me in its place. And he says, and when you, can't, when you yoke yourself to me, when you connect your life to me, you will find that I am gentle and humble. Love it. Gentle means he's strong and soft. Both at the same time. The word gentle was a very interesting thing. The Greek soldier was trained to be gentle. And that didn't mean that he was trained to be powerless. He had to be somebody whose strength was completely under his control. The best illustration we see it in our day and age, again, are the soldiers who stand outside Buckingham Palace in London with that stupid hat on. And those guys are standing guard on the outside of Buckingham Palace. He has a loaded gun next to him. 7.62 millimeter bullet inside of it. I've seen what a 7.62 millimeter bullet can do. You don't want it to hit you. And a guy's standing there with a loaded rifle at his side. And people come up and go, beep, 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 make fun of him, try to get him to get, try and get him distracted and stuff like that. And that man is trained to stand there. If you come at him or try to get through that gate, you're going to die. Because he's there to protect the queen. But he's trained not to respond until the threat is real. That's what gentle means. It's strength, but that is under control. And then he says, and I'm humble. You think humble means weak? Oh, no. Humble means I know how to take full responsibility for everything that is my responsibility. And I don't brag about it. I don't show off about it. I don't shout about how good I am. I'm humble. I'll come alongside of you and I'll help you bear your burden. I'll help you pull and do what you're called to do. Now notice that. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's saying, I want to teach you. I want to educate you. I want to show you the reality of this world. And sometimes the reality he shows us is wonderful and great. If we believe in him, we have eternal life. Sometimes the reality he has to show us is threatening and, and stretching. And, it's, and sometimes frightening. But when he does it, he says, I'm doing it from my gentle and humble side because I want to teach you and I want to lead you forward as you go forward. Okay, so what's the whole point of this sermon? It's this. In order for us to grow, to become the kind of people God wants us to become, in order for our character to be able to change, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And we need to be engaged with, with, with the Spirit of God and say, I want to become like him. I want to become someone who, when people come to me, will find that there's grace and truth there. Humanly speaking, I can't do that. But by the power of God's Spirit, I can grow in that direction and move in that direction. Well, then, what should I be doing? Okay, I want to give you some suggestions on what we could be doing. First of all, build your muscle memory. Do you know what muscle memory is? Muscle memory is something when you've done something repeatedly. And it becomes something that is automatic. You don't have to think about it any longer. I've driven stick shift cars for years. 
And the most amazing thing is I, you can drive all the way home in your stick shift car and never once think about pushing the clutch and changing the gear, letting the clutch out slowly. The, who of you have driven a stick shift car? Oh, okay. Have you noticed that? It's called muscle memory. When you first tried to learn how to drive that car, you were jerking it around and, and you're stalling the car and you couldn't make this thing go. But then you learned, and then after a while, it's so natural. You don't even think about it. That's called muscle memory. It becomes built into you as something that is there when you need it. So here's how to, to build our muscle memory. First of all, solitude. You go, what? Solitude. You know what our problem is? We never are alone. You sit down in a restaurant and immediately, dear God, I've got to be in touch with the whole world. <laughs> you never know, World War III may break out and I'm not in charge right now. Have you noticed we are never alone? We're always on the phone or on TV or on our computers or connected to people. Solitude is incredibly important that you go somewhere by yourself and God and you spend time there. I've got two places that are incredible for me. When I go there and I'm alone with God, and my phone is not there, when I'm alone with God, maybe some, usually with the Bible, it's amazing what happens. And so solitude, you are never going to grow spiritually. You're never going to grow personally if you don't set some time aside where you have solitude. And here's what happens. Your muscle memory begins to want it. You want to be alone. Isn't that amazing? That all of a sudden you find that there are times when it's like, throw my phone away, push everything away. I want to be alone with God for now. So solitude is one of the things. Take your Bible, and I recommend your Bible. You have a Bible that you can write in, a Bible you can highlight, a Bible that's with you, and it's your version of the Bible. If you want a new international version is what we use. English Standard Version, wonderful version of the Bible too. But it's your Bible. It's yours. And you begin to know where the passages are. There's a weird thing about Raymond's brain. I cannot remember specific verses and chapters in the Bible sometimes. But I know where they are in my Bible. I should have brought it with me. I can go there. I know the page. It's like, there it is, right there. Because my muscle memory knows how to find my way around that Bible. Your prayer, come to me who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we pray, we take our burdens to him specifically, okay? Clearly, practically. Don't pray in a stained glass voice. Oh, Father in heaven, bless us, Lord, as we sit here today. You know, go with us, Lord, as we leave this place. What a stupid prayer. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You know, go with us as we leave this place today. Are you with me? When you pray, pray really. Connect and talk to God. And then find a connection group. Here's why. One of our Bible studies. Somewhere along the line, connect yourself to other believers. Because it's in that connection that others reveal stuff about Jesus that you didn't know. And stuff about Jesus that you need to know. And that's how that stuff gets built into our memory. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Both at the same time. And so when you encounter Jesus today, tomorrow, whenever you encounter Jesus, as you come to him, understand that he is fully grace and fully truth, completely intermingled, so that if he's going to say something to you that is hard, it doesn't matter, his grace is there with it. 
And when he comes to you in grace, it's sometimes in order to be able to lead you to some new truth, something that's going to stretch you. So let's do a moment of solitude right now. Let's pray. You find in solitude that for a while the noise in your brain is there. So much noise. And you get anxious. <laughs> but it's what Jesus did. He went up on a mountain by himself. The Father. And Jesus, we thank you that when we meet you, we meet someone who reveals the glory of God. And the glory of God is mercy and love. It's forgiveness and acceptance. It's truth and it's grace. All intermingled perfectly. I pray that we'll become like the Apostle Paul who could say it was his heart, his desire that his life would be marked by grace and truth. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.